What are you going to say? Well, you know, God, I, I tried hard, you know? I did, I did my best. It was, a, it was a bad moment. No, no, no. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith, not guaranteeing intensity of faith, so fickle are we. It's not the intensity of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves. They overcome him on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Hello everyone, my name is Caleb Giesbrecht and this is the Reformed Rants Podcast where today we'll be discussing the topic of Calvinism, also known as TULIP or the Doctrines of Grace. Now this is a very, very controversial topic in the Christian community, so why address it at all? Well, Calvinism asks the questions, how is God's grace distributed? To what effect does it go? To what effect does man's nature go? What is God's nature And how does it play into all of this? Can we reject God's grace prior to salvation? Can we walk away from it after salvation? And so the fact of the matter is that although this may not be primary to salvation, it may not be necessary for salvation, it certainly, certainly affects the way we view salvation, the way we view God, the way we view man, sin, all of it. And so this affects our sanctification. Now, when you are saved, you are justified. You are made just in God's sight by the righteousness of Christ. When you are sanctified, you are growing with God. You are walking alongside God. This is where works come in, and your works are an overflow of the justification process. Now you have faith in God because he has allowed you faith by regenerating you in him. And so now out of that faith comes works. This is an overflow, an abundance. And through this, you come closer and closer and closer to God. This is why James talks about trials. Rejoice in your trials because you are being brought closer to God. You're being just the slight... You're being given the slightest fraction of a glimpse of the suffering that our master went through. So, sanctification is vital to the Christian process. Before we are glorified and ascended to heaven to be with him and to worship the Lord our God. So, Calvinism, vital. Important? Yes. Necessary? No. And so I want to address this as we go on. This is the beginning of a mini-series on Reformed theology and what is Reformed theology. Why do I believe Reformed theology? And so I think this is very vital to start off with because most people who get into Reformed theology, myself included, get into it through Calvinism. It was back in December of 2017, I was sharing the gospel with an atheistic friend of mine and he had asked me, is your God all powerful and he chooses those who he saves or is he all loving and he allows them to have free will? And this sent me on a journey that ultimately led, of course, to these topics of Calvinism, Arminianism, Traditionalism, Provisionism, those are a bunch of labels and I would encourage you to go look more into them yourself after this. This is by no means comprehensive, but rather a brief look at the subject and I think it's kind of interesting and I think really we need to be thinking more deeply on these things as a Christian community. So let's get into it. Starting with Genesis chapter 50, 50 from 15 verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. 
Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And so we see at the end of Genesis that Joseph's brothers come to him and they want forgiveness and he forgives them and he comforts them and he helps them with their little ones. And why does he do this? Because he recognizes that God is sovereign. That God has played his hand in this, that he has turned their works towards himself. He has taken their evil, wicked deeds and pointed them towards himself for his glorification. And is this just through Joseph being in charge of Egypt now? Is Joseph just answering in a selfish way, look, God made life good for me? No, God was glorifying himself through this. And how do we see this? Well, let's go back. Genesis chapter 37, he speaks of Joseph's dreams. Now, what happens in these dreams? Well, a bunch of the stars and the moon and the sun bow down to him. Creation bows down to him. And who does this happen to in a literal sense? Jesus may have happened allegorically to Joseph in terms of Egypt, but if you take it literally, it happened to our Lord. Later in that same chapter, Joseph's brothers sell him for silver, which also literally happened to our Lord. Now, this is just the beginning, guys. It gets kind of crazy. I'm going to go through a bullet point list here. I would recommend you look into this yourself. And we want to recognize also that even though Joseph and his brothers and anyone else in there may be used as a picture of God or of Christ, they themselves are not God or Christ, and they are not to be viewed in an exalted manner. They are equal to us. We are just like any of them. God can use just any of us in the same way, and so we don't want to exalt them to a higher place, but rather recognize the sovereignty of God and the brilliance of God in what he does. So, the next way we see is that Joseph is falsely accused of adultery, just as Christ, after he has been sold, is falsely accused of blasphemy. After that, he's been in prison, Joseph that is, with two men, and those men are a cupbearer and a baker, which are a picture of Christ's blood and Christ's body. One of those men dies in three days, and the other one lives in three days, just as Christ dies and is risen in three days. On the cross next to Christ are two criminals. One of them says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, when you come into the kingdom, remember me. Now, one thing that's really important to remember is after Christ dies and is risen, he is ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when Joseph is imprisoned and he gets out after two years, that is two years later after the interpretation of the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, he is risen to the right hand of the Pharaoh. And so we see this process take place, this death and resurrection of Christ and this taking down and raising up of Joseph. And what is Joseph's response when these men, his brothers, come back to him and ask him for forgiveness? But what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And of course, what they meant for evil is a picture of the evil that God is going to use to bring about the greatest good ever. So if you're going to tell me God pre-knew this, but you do not predetermine it, predestine it, then this is all random and coincidence. 
that these things point to Christ. And look, I'm wanting to get onto a future series, potentially, in which we'll discuss Old Testament themes that point towards Christ. Now, the main reason I want to get into this more and more and more is because the fact of the matter is we just have a real disregard for the Old Testament nowadays. You know, we learned it in Sunday school and we go, I get what it means. It's this story, this story, this story, this story. But the fact is, these stories are important and these stories point to our Lord and who he is and what he has done. And so if we truly love him and want to get to know him, we need to understand both the Old and the New Testament. And so how does this help an understanding of Calvinism? Well, the fact of the matter is Calvinism really, really lays on the foundation of the sovereignty of God. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. He is a king. He is a lord. He is an emperor over all. Whereas Arminianism will focus upon the love of God. God loves us. He has been gracious. He has granted us free will. So why isn't both side right? Well, the fact of the matter is we need to understand where both the love and sovereignty of God lay, which Arminians believe in the sovereignty of God and Calvinists believe in the love of God. I'm not going to deny either, but we need to really understand the holiness of who our God is. So for that, we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Wow, this is a beautiful passage. And so what we need to recognize, first of all, is that back in verse 1, he mentions, In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, why is this important? Back in chapter 1, verse 1, Isaiah had written the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw considering Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so what this means is that he starts the book off with the summary. He's written all four kings, so he's writing after their existence, after their, after at least the first three are gone. Chapter 6 begins by saying it was written in the year that King Uzziah died. Therefore, it is the narrative beginning of the book. Now, King Uzziah was a king of Judah, which means he was under a constitutional monarchy, and that constitution was God's constitution, which the kings were very wicked and disobeyed. In fact, God struck King Uzziah down with leprosy for his disobedience. So, we know that they were not afraid to take things into their own hands often, and they were not totally bound down to by this constitution. Therefore, they had a lot more power than our modern leaders do especially here in North America. So, sovereignty is something that is difficult to even grasp for us. So, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Is this Lord King Uzziah? 
No, no, this is God. People are filling this temple. They're mourning. And what does he say? High and lifted up, and the train of his robe, that is the robe of the Lord, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Those are the angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. He covered his face. He could not look upon the Lord. He covered his feet. He could not stand in the presence of the Lord. And he flew with the other two. And one called to another saying, Holy, holy, holy. Now this is the only attribute of God that is brought to the third level. God is so other, transcendent, distinct, apart from us, that he is holy, 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 separate, 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 other, other, other. And that is the fact. God is so sovereign and so incredibly righteous and perfect that we can never, ever, ever attain that. And so, therefore, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And you can just hear this when Isaiah is saying this. This is insane. This is incredible. This is majestic. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, this is speaking to the holiness of God. I recognize how horrible I am in his presence. He is so holy, and I am so unholy. I am not worthy of his presence. And of course, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Why? Because sin cannot stand in the presence of God. And it needs to be atoned for to be in his presence. And God loves you and God will atone for that sin. But we notice one of the prerequisites to Isaiah being atoned for. He recognizes his unrighteousness and depravity. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So, that is the gospel, pretty much. God is holy. God is just. God is sovereign. We are unholy. We are unrighteous. We are wicked. We are unclean. Yet God loves us, and we can recognize who we are and who he is and trust in him he will save us from our sins he will make us righteous he will cover us in christ's righteousness we'll be made perfect one day and so that is the truth of the gospel and so that lays the foundation for our talk here on calvinism today so let's get into the five points of calvinism right away the tulip the acrostic that stands for each one but the fact of the matter is God is love, and we don't want to forget that. He is also sovereign, and we don't want to forget that. He is also holy, and we do not want to forget that. So, that's the foundation. That's what we stand on, and now let's press forward. Starting with the tea and tulip, total depravity. Now, total depravity does not mean God, man cannot come to God, but rather man will not come to God. And so, where where do we see this in Scripture? And that's the question we need to ask with, you, with each of these points, and we'll just jump right into it. And, you know, just as we saw there in Isaiah chapter 6, God is holy. He's called holy three times, brought to the third level. And then what does Isaiah do? He says, woe to me, 
for I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognizes that depravity, and so it obviously exists, and we need to see the continuity in Scripture and what it means in Scripture. So let's go all the way back to the garden for a second, where God tells Adam and Eve, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a fact. Or you shall surely die. Now, what does death mean? Because they didn't die right after they sinned. They didn't die right after they ate that fruit. Rather, they were separated from God, spiritually speaking. And in a sense, physically speaking. So, we see separation from God is a defining concept of what death means throughout Scripture when it speaks of our sin nature. Remember, we're not talking about the will here. We're talking about the nature of man. God has a good and perfect nature. Therefore, God cannot sin. His will does not have any effect on it. It's his nature. His nature does not allow his will to sin. The nature controls the will. And so we see this with animals. You put bananas and meat in front of a monkey, it's going to choose the bananas because the nature directs the will. You put the same two piles of meat in front of a lion, it's going to choose the meat because the nature directs the will. When it comes to our masculine and feminine natures, girls like dolls, boys like trains. Why? Because the nature directs the will. Now that's not a perfect thing because we have our sin nature which overrides that, which is the reason we have things like transgenderism and the LGBTQ movement. And uh, I mean, even to I guess a lesser extent, stuff like tomboys and girls who are more like into masculine things and guys who are more into slightly feminine things. You know, it's it's not a sin there, but it's just, it's affected by what's happened in the world. And so I, I want to point to that, you know, our nature directs our choices. It's not like our will is free completely in that sense, but rather our nature, which we never chose. We were born with nature. And so we see God, in all technicality, doesn't have a free will because he can't sin. So... Our wills are in bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin, as scripture says. And let's just read through Isaiah chapter 3 here for a second before we move on to Ephesians chapter 2. Romans chapter 3 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so we see that people have fallen. People are separate from God. They are distinct from God because they are unholy, unrighteous, wicked, and depraved. Now, Let's move on to Ephesians chapter 2, in which Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now that's dead in terms of separated from God in terms of nature, not dead, dead, that you can't do anything, in which you once followed, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So you're still doing stuff. You're still following yourself. You're still following Satan. You're still following sin. You're not following God. That's what you're incapable of doing because you will not do it. You will cannot choose because of your nature. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ made us. Notice that. By grace you have been saved. You're not saved by faith. You're saved by grace. 
and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast works are a result. Salvation is not the result, is the foundation. Christ saves us through his grace, through regeneration, which results in faith, which results in works. For we are his worksmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So as you see, salvation is a result of his grace. He saves us through the means of faith. His grace affects us internally, giving us faith, has to regenerate us, and gives us faith, which overflows into a life of works. This is what the process of salvation is. Justified. You've been justified in God's sight. He has saved you by grace through faith, not by works that no man may boast. Now you're justified. Now you're made right in his eyes. Now there needs to be an overflow of works. Now you need to be looking to him, gaining greater knowledge of him and wisdom and understanding of his will. That is called sanctification. And ultimately, you will be saved. You will be brought with the Lord. You will be reconciled and you will be glorified fully with the Father for eternity. So this is what total depravity is. You are fallen and you cannot get up, right? Now let's move a chapter back to Ephesians chapter 1, where we're going to look for unconditional election. Does the text of scripture teach this or am I just making it up? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm starting in verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Yes, amen, amen, amen. Of course, we see this tied in with chapter 2, you know. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and had and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He just does it. It's not dependent. It's not contingent on anything that we do. So, unconditional election. God unconditionally elects the people to himself. Now, we're going to get into it a bit more right away, but... 
I just want to say this. He is, his election that he has predestined someone is not conditioned on your choice. Rather, your choice is conditioned on his election. All right, let's look at John chapter 10 from verse 23 through to verse 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was talking in, was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, that is not in terms of godhood, but rather in terms of purpose. Guys, we believe because we are among God's sheep. We're not sheep because we believe. I'd also point you to Acts 13.48, which says, And when the Gentiles heard this, that is, the preaching of the word, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Where is the condition in that? I don't see a condition, and that's the basis for my argument, you know. I just don't see any idea of a condition upon God's election and salvation ever, anywhere. And so, let's quickly look to the most, probably most, foundational text for this and that would be of course Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 33 and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and for and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let's look at this for a second. Now some will argue, because he foreknew them, he predestined them. He foreknew who he was going to choose, and he chose those people. He chose them on the basis of the condition. He chose them on the basis of their choice. However, he says later in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. So if you're called by God, you're justified. If he calls you, you're made righteous in his sight. There's no game past that. <laughs> you know, this calling of God to an elect people is not for everyone because not everyone is justified. Not everyone is made right in God's sight. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He brought up to heaven, he transcended up to himself to worship him for all of eternity. We know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If you are called according to his purpose, you will love God. And all things will work together for your good. If you love God, that means you were called. If you don't love God, that means you were not called. And so that's, that's, that's the thing with unconditional election. If you're called by God, you don't get given a choice. You are just brought to God. Like, he turns your nature towards him so that you will make the choice of salvation, but in the end, your choice is not the basis and it's not the condition for your election. And that's the argument I'm proposing here. Feel free to contradict that. <laughs> Feel free to defend your other viewpoints if you want in the comments. I'm totally open to debate on this. I'm not, like, 
I'm not going to just shut you down, and I don't have disrespect for you guys, and I recognize that there are many fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are just going to just disagree with everything I have to say in this podcast, and that's totally cool. And that's why we have Christ as our foundation, because we can unite on that. We can look to one another and love one another and discuss this stuff with grace and love for each other. Next up, we have probably the most controversial of the five points of Calvinism, and that would be limited atonement. That just sounds bad in general. You're limiting the atonement, guys? What's your problem? But the fact of the matter is, I would claim the Arminian. That is the one who holds to the opposite belief system of me, that Christ draws people up to himself, and they are given the option of eternal life, and they can reject that or they can accept it. He brings their nature almost all the way, and then they just have to change whether or not to choose change it. And uh, they can leave salvation, too, afterwards. So, I would argue that they do, because what they say is Christ draws everyone up to himself to a certain point. It's a potential atonement. It only potentially does atone for the sins of mankind. It's an offer. It's a free offer to all. And all can accept it, or none can accept it, or some can accept it, and Christ could have potentially died for nobody, which is insane. Under the Calvinist way of thinking, we would say, God did not die in such a sense, but rather in a particular sense, that he died as an offer for all. Now, we preach the gospel without discrimination. He died as an offer for everybody. And so we look at this, and Christ's death is sufficient for everybody. It has the far-ranging scope that it could easily, easily atone for the sins of this entire world for all of mankind's history. However, it does not atone for all, because it does not pay for all. It only pays for the sins of the elect. Now, let's look back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, and that all points towards him. Now, the sacrificial system was a gift of God to the people of Israel. They were underneath the law, and so if they disobeyed it, he needed to kill them, physically speaking, because he is a just God and a righteous God. And so he gave them the sacrificial system so that they could atone for those sins and continue to live here on earth. That's why there were saved and unsaved Jews, because it was meant so that they could continue to live. But what do we get? In Isaiah chapter 1, when he's speaking of their wickedness, how they have become become disgusting, they're estranged from their father as the children of Israel. But Isaiah says to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God. This starts in verse 10. You people of Gomorrah, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delay in the blood of bulls or of lambs, or of goats. And so what is Isaiah saying to them? God commanded them to make sacrifices, so why does it mean nothing to him now? Well, the fact of the matter is it was a gift, so that they could continue to live. And they were living in complete wickedness, disobedience, disregard, and no acknowledgement for the God who took them out of Egypt, the God who continually saved them during the period of the judges. And he granted them the system that they may continue to live, and they just said no. No, we hate you, we will not acknowledge you as God. And so his response was, they're meaningless, you just hate me. 
And so when Christ dies as a sacrifice for all, and everybody just goes on living the way they go on living, they don't place their trust in him, they continue to hate him and reject him and forsake him. He says, no, that is meaningless. Your life is meaningless. Now, my death sufficiently paid for the sins of all. But it's not going to actually pay for your sins. It's just going to go to waste. And that's what the disgusting aspect of our sin is that we just lay it on him over and over and over. We just place more and more and more on top of our Lord. And yes, if you're an unbeliever listening to this, he is your Lord, whether or not you like it. He is the Lord of all creation. And those who accept it and those who reject it, he's the Lord of all. And you know it whether or not you're going to admit it. That's a fact. All right, let's move on to the fourth aspect of TULIP, and that is irresistible grace. So, can we resist God's grace? Because, you know, lots of you are probably asking right now, well, people are always rejecting God's grace. You said that Christ died, and that he was a sacrifice, and that they continue to reject him, even though he was an offer for all. So, in a sense, they are definitely rejecting his grace. God's continuing to allow everyone to live. They're rejecting his grace. King Saul himself was rejected by God. God removed his spirit from the man because he was disobedient, because he refused to comply with God's orders. This is why after David commits adultery with Bathsheba, he pleads with the Lord for a clean heart. This is Psalm chapter 51, of course. And he says in verses 11 and 12, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So what do we see? God is literally being rejected all the time in terms of grace. His grace is always being resisted. But when I say irresistible grace, I mean when God wills, he will. God will do it when he wills it. And especially when it comes to our salvation, God will overcome our heart, override it, and place a new nature on it. That's why it's called born again. You're born once, you're born with the sin nature. Did you choose the sin nature? No. You're born with the masculine or feminine nature. Did you choose those? No. Now you need to be born again and granted a new nature. And that is, of course, continuous with all previous lines of thought that I brought up here and what the scriptures have had to say on this. All right, we're going to finish this off with John chapter 6, which is probably for myself the primary text when it comes to this topic. And so he feeds the 5,000 at the beginning of the chapter, and then he leaves for a while, walks on water, and then the next day he comes back, and the crowd speaks to him. In verse 25 it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What does this mean? Well, the fact of the matter is they are pursuing the gifts of God without acknowledging or honoring him as God. Let's point back to last week. If you guys haven't listened to that, I totally recommend you go listen to my first episode. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I t say to you, but I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so we get this, we get this uh, interaction similar to John chapter 10 where he's confronted by these people asking him, where did you come from? And he says, you're not looking for the signs of me as Messiah and that is your problem. You are looking for food, the desires of the flesh. You are pursuing the gifts of God and forsaking God, not acknowledging him as God. Of course, this is the fundamental issue and it's a nature issue. Are you pursuing God or his gifts first and foremost? Are they to worship him or yourself? This is what the ultimate fundamental question comes down to. And so he points out to them, I am the bread. Which gets him onto a tangent at the end of this section here where he says, I am the flesh and I am the blood. And unless you eat of this flesh and unless you drink of this blood, you are not part of me. And so you are either all in or you are all out. And then, of course, after this section, it says, Many of his disciples heard it. They said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing to himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless I grant him by the Father. He knew from the beginning those who did not believe and he who would betray him. And Christ said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the is granted him by the Father. And so literally he's just gone all in again you are either all in or you are all out if you if the father grants it to you if the father calls you if the father draws you you are in but many of you are not called many of you are not drawn and so we see this from christ time and time again it's brought up in chapter 8 chapter 10 chapter 18 chapter 15 john brings this theme up continuously throughout the book and i really exhort you all to go and Study John full on. Go through this entire book. Read it for yourself. Don't just take my word for this. 
Alright, now we are at the fifth point of Calvinism, the perseverance of the saints. Now, perseverance of the saints would argue for a once saved, always saved salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. On the other hand, I don't want to strawman the Arminian position and argue that they believe that you can just randomly lose your salvation, but instead they would argue for an idea of you can walk away, you can abandon the salvation you once had. Now this is in direct contrast to the scriptures we mentioned prior, such as John chapter 10, where he says, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Or, you know, the section that I want to directly address here, John chapters 6 and 7. Now we're going to jump into chapter 7 and then we'll go back. And I want to read a few verses here, starting in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, Christ is permanent. He can always come to the Father. And unlike a priest who would have to sacrifice time and time and time again until he died for other people and for themselves, Christ is the atonement. Christ is the sacrifice. It's the reason he can make intercession is because those sins were paid upon him. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the complete, to the extent of the end. You will not lose your salvation. Those who turn near to God through him, through him. Christ is the only way to salvation, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, what is he talking about here in Hebrews? The author of Hebrews is unknown, by the way, so for those of you who don't know that, he's comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest in the book of Genesis. Now, the reason that Christ is compared to Melchizedek and not another priest like Aaron or his sons or any of the Levitical priesthood is because Melchizedek was not in a line of priests. It was not his inheritance. It was not just how his life was. It was, he was special. He was ordained by God back in Genesis. And the fact of the matter is nobody knows much about Melchizedek. He was just there. (laughs) And so he's considered to be this kind of mythical figure in a sense, but really he was just like you and I, but God used him. God used him in the sense that he was a picture of Christ, just like Joseph, as I mentioned earlier. We should not deify biblical people who are just as human as you or I, just as wicked as you or I, but God raises some up for himself. And so Christ is being compared to him, and it's the priestly order of Melchizedek, an eternal order. But Melchizedek is the only person we see in this so-called order. And Christ is the only true priest that we see in his order, the only perfect priest, the only eternal priest. And so that's the comparison. And if one were to argue that Melchizedek is Jesus, then why is David compared to Melchizedek in the Psalms? That it happened to be Psalm 110. So, the fact of the matter is, we're saying Christ is a perfect and eternal Savior. He's a priest who has permanent atonement for you and is not going to lose you. So, the argument that you can lose your salvation? False. So, 
<clears throat> many will point to Hebrews 6, the chapter prior, say you can lose your salvation. What? Why, why would they do that? Well, let's read through it, and I'll answer. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the re- resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk in the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, now this is pointing back to the garden, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so this passage isn't talking about Christians, it's talking about non-Christians who sprout up like in the parable of the sower, but then shrivel down. They were never believers to begin with. They tasted the heavenly things, but they did not want God for who he is. Now, this is why he starts off the chapter by saying, Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go into maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He's wanting to move on to sanctification to see if they have real fruit. He's wanting to see if they're just fake, and if they're going to sprout up and shrivel, if they're truly believers in God. Four. So, why? Because it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up him up to contempt. This is what King Saul did. He just disobeyed God time and time and time again. And then he refused to destroy the Amalekite nation properly, and God removed his spirit from him. He rejected his kingship. And so, this is not talking in a sense of salvifically, and for the believer, but rather for the non-believer. For the land that has drunk up the rain, that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, he's pointing back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, it, they talk about the land bearing thorns and thistles for Adam. And this theme is brought up through, throughout Scripture time and time again, this idea of thorns and thistles. That God hates, hates thorns and thistles and wicked fruit, bad fruit. That, that does not obey him, but rather glorifies man. And so what we see is that he's saying, these are, these are the people who are going to they're gonna look like they're looking to me, but they're not really. This is the double-minded man that is warned against in James. James tells us that he is like a wave of the sea. He'll be tossed to and fro. But you will see, notice by his works, 
gonna have he's gonna have a tongue on him slandering people he's gonna cause division he's gonna be worldly and the reason is because he's gonna place his trust in himself and his wisdom and the godly man the true godly man will be meek and gentle and place his wisdom in christ his trust will be in our lord and that is the difference you'll see it in the fruit and so he's saying is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the holy spirit those who look like they were justified those who have heard the gospel accepted it and then rejected it now that's not to say they were saved but rather that it was a false conversion and so that's what he's talking about here in hebrews 6 and that's why you can say in the next chapter that christ is an eternal priest god is a perfect priest and so yeah i mean if you guys have any questions about all this, please do ask it. Ask me at my email, thereformedrants at gmail.com, my Facebook, The Reformed Rants, or Instagram, The Reformed Rants. For those of you interested in the schedule for this show, it'll be once a week every Tuesday. However, there'll be occasionally bonus episodes on Friday, such as this Friday. And for those listening on iTunes, please rate and review the show. That's how it gets out there, how it gets popular, how we get more people listening. It's really, really crucial to that, especially right now or in the new and popular stage. So I would really, really appreciate if you could go out and do that for me. Please do share this podcast wherever you can. Keep on listening, though. And any criticism is invited. I'm excited to keep on doing this. Hope you guys are, too.